Man with immaculate least can do programming. Scientist the Human Podcast commencing. Welcome to this episode of Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simranjit Singh, and I'm here with Dr. Eric Wang, who is an assistant professor at JAX. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, thank you, Sim. It's uh, great to be back on your podcast. Looking forward to talking to you today. Yeah, awesome. Exactly. So Eric is actually our first uh, returning guest, and uh, there's a special reason for that. So uh, Eric and I actually met when I was working as a research technician and lab manager at NYU School of Medicine, and Eric was a grad student. And I've kind of followed Eric's career since then. He's always been an amazing scientist, and he has uh, now his own lab. And he's uh, setting up shop and recruiting. So, Eric, let's start there. How, how's that been? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, everything is brand new, totally, totally brand new for me. So the recruitment process and everything is something that, you know, I kind of you know, just learned myself. And, you know, so far it's been great. I mean, I've been fortunate to, you know, have a lot of good networking. So, you know, I was able to uh, hire a research technician so far. And just yesterday, I hired my uh, first postdoctoral fellow uh, to join my lab. Nice. And so, you know, I'm also, you know, looking forward to, you know, recruiting more members. So, you know, if anyone's interested in uh, cancer research, like leukemia and drug resistance, you know, definitely uh, feel free to contact me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, when I post uh, this episode, we'll definitely have all that information posted as well. Uh, link to your to your lab page, uh, which is really nice, by the way. It's a very aesthetically pleasing lab website. Uh, so we'll definitely put a link to that, and so everybody. Can oh, thank it. you. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, let's uh, let's jump in a little bit and, and uh, talk about your your research. So you mentioned a little bit. Uh, you know, you, you focus on leukemia. Um, you do a lot of uh, genomic uh, approaches. You, you do a lot of, um, if I remember correctly, uh, RNA binding protein work. And so I'd, I'd love to just kind of uh, dig into to all of those and, and uh, kind of talk about um, if we start with leukemia, um, you know, could you present us with, with maybe some stats or, or some figures on... Um, uh, kind of the the epidemi- epidemiology of leukemia and and why it's bad and how prevalent it is. Uh, of course, yeah, it's my pleasure. So, uh, you know, of course, we know that you know, cancer is a very heterogeneous disease, and the leukemia that I'm specifically focused on is a disease known as acute myeloid or AML. And you know, among all the leukemia subtypes, uh, AML tends to have the worst prognosis among all leukemia subtypes uh, in adults. And uh, typically the five-year survival rate for these patients are generally uh, around 25% or less. And you know, this is primarily due to that you know, this disease has, has in the past very limited therapeutic options, which you know, intensive chemotherapy has been kind of the main regimen treatment. Uh, but more recently, there has been kind of approved targeted therapies. But also importantly, and this is more relevant for relevant for my uh, research right now, in which I'm more interested in how uh, these therapies are being used, um, in which patients eventually develop uh, de novo or uh, acquire resistance to these therapies. 
and how we can uh, understand mechanisms to overcome this uh, therapy resistance. Yeah, and uh, so you mentioned a, a few terms in there that, that I'd like to unpack a little bit. So you mentioned um, so yeah. therapy resistance, right, is, is one, and targeted therapies is another. So can you talk a little bit about what, uh, in, in broad terms, what a targeted therapy is and how that contrasts with uh, like a chemotherapy, for example? Yeah, sure. Um, so... You know, targeted therapy is basically a you know, drug compound that, you know, targets, selectively targets, you know, in quotations, a very specific protein uh, that is potentially required for uh, leukemia cell survival or growth. This is compared to, uh, in comparison to, for example, intensive chemotherapy, which tends to just generally target uh, um, proliferative cells, which, you know, could include you know, a lot of your, you know, normal cells in your bodies as well as tissues. And so the idea of target therapy is that it might have a preferential activity or specificity towards targeting leukemia cells, uh, while hopefully not so much uh, targeting normal cells, which, you know, of course, could have many uh, cytotoxic effects, especially in AML patients, which tends to be much older patients, so, you know, over 70 years old. And, you know, they tend to not really tolerate really intense chemotherapy very well. And therefore, you know, nowadays, you know, target therapies, including uh, this uh, drug known as venetoclax, which uh, targets this protein known as uh, BCL2, which is involved in apoptosis, uh, has been widely successful in treating a lot of these uh, hematological malignancies. Uh, so I hope that answers the question yeah yeah absolutely um yeah and so you mentioned that like um these uh kind of uh intensive chemotherapy treatment regimens since they they aren't they are not targeted they can have all sorts of side effects right just like toxicities and so yep. yeah because they just target highly polluted exactly. cells as you mentioned and so i mean part of the reason uh you, kind of there's this image of a, a cancer patient undergoing chemo and has hair loss for example, uh, it is often due to, to these mm -hmm. chemotherapies that like target the like the the hair follicle stem cells, basically, right, and, and that causes patients' hair to fall out. Uh, that's yes. kind of a, an example of, of what these side effects look like. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and so you also mentioned um, uh, therapy resistance, right? And I know that's a that's a complicated topic. That's actually something that I've worked a lot on too <laughs> during my PhD. And it's there's no one way to to kind of tackle it or one way to describe it. But in the context of of leukemia, um, you, you, and you mentioned venetoclax, uh, and so I think there's been a ton of research done on uh, therapy resistance to like traditional chemo and leukemia, but also therapy resistance to targeted therapies like venetoclax. So could you speak to a little bit about targeted therapy and why it's an issue? Uh, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, targeted therapies, of course, they target a very specific proteins. And, and unfortunately, cancer cells and, you know, such as leukemia cells are very smart and, you know, evolutionary. They can learn to adapt to these therapies. And, you know, this could be due to a primary, uh, like several reasons, uh, including uh, genetic mutations that can, you know, bypass the dependencies of these drugs. Uh, for example, if you uh, mutate amino acids 
of the binding site of where this drug binds to. This can induce uh, kind of resistance to these therapies. Uh, but there are also mechanisms known as non-genetic mechanism, which you know, th- doesn't nece- necessarily involve uh, genetic mutations within DNA, but more um, other mechanisms, including uh, metabolism, epigenetics, and transcriptional dysregulation that can also uh, confer resistance uh, to some of these targeted therapies, but also uh, as well as uh, chemotherapy. Uh, so that's why, at least uh, for my research, we're interested in you know, understanding uh, the mechanism by which these leukemia cells can develop resistance for us to basically devise new therapy strategies that can be used to overcome. Yeah, and you, you mentioned uh, transcriptional dysregulation. Uh, I think that that's a great segue into, into some of the work that that you've done and so I, I one of your one of your really interesting and big papers from your graduate work was a uh, uh, cancer cell paper targeting an RNA binding protein network in acute myeloid leukemia. Uh, can we talk about that? So, what is an RNA binding protein, and uh, what do they do? Why are they important? And how can targeting a network of these things impact leukemia treatment? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So uh, simply RNA binding proteins are, as kind of the name suggests, these are proteins that you know, have a preference for binding to RNA molecules instead of like DNA. And you know they're important for regulating really a diverse number of uh, biological processes. You know, one of these, which you know, we focus on in that cancer cell paper, is this process known as splicing. Um, in which, as you know, the central dogma, which is DNA generates RNA and then protein. And so these uh, splicing proteins are important for generating protein diversity through exchanging or including or excluding different uh, exons um, within an mRNA. Um, and the reason why we focus on uh, understanding RNA binding proteins was that we performed uh, this kind of uh, unbiased uh, CRISPR screen targeting all known like canonical RNA binding proteins. And indeed, we're able to identify several of these uh, RNA binding proteins or splicing factors that were preferentially required for leukemia cells, but are dispensable for uh, normal hematopoiesis. And more importantly, we don't really see effect with other cancer type besides uh, the effect in uh, AML. Um, so this led us to kind of uh, develop in, com- in collaboration with a drug company, uh, based, uh, a ProTac actually, uh, which oh. might be of your interest, uh, <laughs> called E7820, which targets or degrades uh, the splicing factor known as RBM39, uh, which we published in that paper. And uh, I-, I think it's great to see that also this work is currently being uh, tested in early phase one clinical trials here at uh, MSK. So uh, we'll see how that looks in the future. Nice. Well, first of all, that's amazing that uh, something that was, you know, started by you through uh, kind of an unbiased uh, genomic screen, right, a CRISPR screen. Uh, We made a finding, you developed the finding, and something that was discovered by you in a lab is now being tested in clinical trials, potentially helping patients. I mean, that's... That's already pretty cool. Yeah, it's definitely like the the goal or the dream of our research to kind of translate our findings to uh, the clinical setting. So it's really great to see that this kind of example work out. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Uh, 
So yeah, so for this study, uh, so you said that uh, you conducted uh, a CRISPR screen that was focused on RNA binding proteins. So you target all you targeted all known RNA binding proteins. So if we just take a step back, um, what was it that compelled you to even look at RNA binding proteins in the first place? Oh, that's yeah, that's a really excellent question. Um, so you know, I, I think you know it's definitely you know not as well studied as other uh, you know, for example, transcription factors, you know, epigenetics like chromatin regulators, and so we want to kind of explore a new area. And you know, it's definitely a risky project. We didn't know what's going to happen with these CRISPR screens. Uh, fortunately, it worked out, but, but you know, we just want to kind of dive into a new area. And for myself, you know, I want to. Also, you know, one of my, you know, my mentor, PhD mentor, Yanis Ifantis, recommended me or gave me like advice that you, know, you should build your own kind of niche uh, in the research field. So, you know, I want to study something that, you know, not a lot of people focused on. So I could kind of build myself and my reputation from that. So, you know, RNA binding proteins was just a great area that was understudied at the time in the context, you know, of leukemia and. You know, I was very fortunate that, you know, we had a phenotype and mechanism and everything. Yeah, so it worked out really well. Yeah, that's that's cool. Uh, yeah, so not only, as you yeah. mentioned, was it an understudied area, it also ended up helping you professionally, right? So it was it was a very, uh, very smart choice to, to pursue. That's cool. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And then, so after... Uh, after uh, NYU, you you moved on to do a, a postdoc at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, under uh, in the lab of uh, Dr. Omar Abdel Wahab. Yeah, and uh, so while you were there, um, you published an interesting paper, which uh, also, if I understand correctly. Uh, has to do with some RNA binding proteins, but your approach was different from your previous study. So you use something called a surface antigen guided CRISPR screen. So what what is that? Oh yeah, so that's also I mean that's also part of my PhD, also like part of my postdoc work too. Okay, uh, it was basically a collaboration between both, um, but it was basically uh, you know integrating new CRISPR technology. And in this case, you know, we performed a very unbiased, you know, genome-wide CRISPR screen um, using kind of a technology known as flow cytometry. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that we take uh, leukemia cells or AML cells, we transduce them or infect them with this pooled uh, genome-wide CRISPR knockout library, and then by using flow cytometry, we can basically gate out on specific populations and. The main question for this project was to look at genes that can regulate uh, leukemia differentiation, uh, mainly because you know one of the more successful therapies uh, in AML uh, has been the use of this idea or concept of differentiation therapy, where mm. basically AML cells are very kind of a progenitor like state, and if you differentiate them to more like a macrophage, they tend to undergo senescent-induced apoptosis. Mm-hmm. And this also can overcome some of the toxicity that's often observed with uh, chemotherapy. 
And so we wanted to identify potentially uh, new candidates that can be uh, nominated for uh, differentiation therapy. And this actually also led us to identify uh, uh, RNA binding protein uh, known as uh, ZFP36L2, mm-hmm. which uh, basically when we knock out this RNA binding protein, this causes specifically leukemia cells to differentiate into uh, these macrophages and then undergo apoptosis. Um, unfortunately, you know, there is no drug therapy, but this is something that in the future that you know, we would like to kind of work on. But um, yeah, that's kind of the kind of general idea for, for that paper. Yeah, that's a, that's a cool paper as well. And, and so in this case, you have, uh, instead of having a protein that you can degrade, it sounds like ZFP36L2? Uh, 36L2, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it sounds like that's something uh, that might need to be activated to fully achieve the differentiation effect. Does that sound right? Uh, yeah, I mean, also, I mean uh, definitely... Like if you have a small molecule inhibitor or something mm-hmm. like a protect to degrade it, mm-hmm. um, now that would definitely uh, have that's the idea basically to knock out this protein. Um, but you know these classes of RNA binding protein tends to be very difficult to target pharmacologically. So mm-hmm. I think you know this leads us to you know hopefully we could develop uh, new technologies such as Protax yeah. to like target some of these uh, difficult-to-target proteins. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so that, that's, that's my bad. I thought maybe this protein was yeah. something that's required for the differentiation, and so that maybe it would be something that should be activated, but it sounds like it's something that should be inhibited or degraded as well. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Got it. <laughs> okay, yeah, so yeah, so uh, another uh, apology, yeah, I thought this... Um, this study, I thought this study was part of your postdoctoral work, as you mentioned, you clarified. It's also part of your, your PhD work at NYU, mostly, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, so... Uh, quite yeah, a, quite it a, all kind of blends in, yeah. Quite a strong PhD, I would say. Um, yeah, nice, uh, nice work there. <laughs> uh, yeah, so now we're moving on to the, to the postdoc, right? So now we're, you know, now you're at uh, Sloan Kettering. Yeah. And uh, so here it looks like you did kind of work... Uh, more directly on therapy resistance. So can we talk about um, what you focused on during your postdoc? Yes. So, so, um, you know, during, for this project that we recently just published, uh, I kind of switched focus. So instead of, uh, you know, understanding resistance to, you know, acute myeloquemia, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, the shift is towards more uh, like uh, B-cell leukemia, such as uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, mm-hmm. uh, as well as other B-cell malignancies. And, you know, this is, you know, a very different project, you know, that worked compared to all the projects that I've worked on in the past, such that it's very clinical, mm-hmm. where um, basically we investigated a kind of early phase one, two clinical trial of uh, the CLL patients that were treated with this new uh, non-covalent inhibitor that targets this bruton tyrosine kinase, or BTK. Mm-hmm. And so in the past, you know, CLL patients often get uh, the covalent version of this BTK inhibitor. But uh, unfortunately, many of these, you know, roughly 30 to 40% of these patients possibly develop resistant mechanisms to this drug, primarily, as I kind of mentioned before, that mm-hmm. one of the mechanisms is that um, 
basically cancer cells can you know, generate mutations within that DNA where this drug basically binds uh, to that specific region. So there's this really uh, well-established mutation, the C4A1S, which is located within those BTK proteins that completely abolish um, the binding to the covalent ver version of this compound. And so this led us to uh, collaborate with you know, pharmaceutical companies in which now they develop a non-covalent uh, version of this compound, which is reversible. Right. And you know, this is overall to kind of overcome the resistant mechanisms that are associated with the covalent version. Um, and so overall, I mean, right now in clinical trials, it seems to respond very well. Um, these patients that develop resistance to the covalent can uh, you know, tolerate as well as uh, demonstrate a decrease in leukemia burden with the non-covalent BTK inhibitor. But of course, one of the caveats, again, cancer cells are extremely smart in such that they can basically develop resistant mechanisms to this new compound as well. And when we performed uh, genomic sequencing of these patients, we found new mutations within those BTK proteins that confer uh, specific resistance to uh, this non-covalent BTK inhibitor. And so that was the uh, recent work that we you know, published in uh, New England uh, Journal of Medicine uh, to kind of describe those resistant mechanisms that are associated with this new compound. Yeah, that is, that's super interesting. And uh, yeah, so before I ask you more about it, and I, I think you touched on this a little bit, but can you explain the difference between covalent and non-covalent inhibitors? Uh, that's, that's a really good point. Uh, so from what I understand, uh, non uh, co I can start off with covalent inhibitors. Mm -hmm. These tends to be irreversible. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the kind of ma major issues with some of these covalent inhibitors, especially this uh, BTK inhibitor, such as brutinib, tends to be, uh, you, know, uh, you know, there's some toxicity associated with them. And so these just bind to the protein itself compared to a non-covalent inhibitor, which is described as reversible. So it could bind on and off the proteins, and this tend to have you know, lower toxicity effects, which they also see in, in these clinical trials. But uh, the on-target effect is still the same. They still target the same protein. The, you know, the efficacy is very similar to each other. It's just uh, well-tolerable, and it also binds at a separate region compared to their covalent counterparts. So as I mentioned, these covalent compounds, if cancer cells develop a resistance within the specific region that prevents binding to these covalent compounds, uh, basically the non-covalent can bind at a separate location while targeting the same protein. Okay, so is the idea, so because the non-covalent inhibitors are reversible and you're saying that they are, uh, they potentially have fewer side effects, um, is that because they, in, in the normal tissues that, that end up being affected by them, they can be kind of bound and unbound? And so is that what kind of reduces the toxicity? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, so this, as you mentioned at the beginning, is a little different from, from your previous um, research studies. And so this one is more clinical. And so can you talk a little bit about how you got involved in this and, and how 
this uh, ended up being kind of a more clinical study, and so you were you were still studying uh, kind of therapy resistance or uh, you know kind of uh, regulators uh, uh, or different uh, treatments uh, for uh, leukemias. But uh, yeah, I would love to hear about how you got involved or how you kind of uh, spearheaded this this really cool study that's more clinical, as you mentioned. Yeah, so I mean that's definitely something I wanted to uh, get involved with, you know. Being, you know, Memorial Sloan Catering, again, one of the top research institutes for cancer research. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of their primary advantages is that they have access to, you know, a plethora of patient samples and clinical trials, which, you know, we really didn't get at uh, NYU. So, and that's something really I want to kind of understand the process and, you know, the research, you know, in these clinical trials to have a more kind of, kind of background. And, you know, at that point, you know, Omar, you know, my mentor now, you know, gave me several projects to work on. And, you know, I thought this definitely was something I wanted to get involved. It's a kind of new drug compound. Uh, it's also a new disease, which, you know, it's difficult to study, but it's, I, feel, I find like the challenge, you know, very exciting. Um, but of course, you know, this is one kind of project that, you know, we published and, you know, Omar's specialty is actually, you know, what I worked on during my PhD, which is RNA binding proteins and splicing leukemia. Right. And so I do have uh, another manuscript, which is actually currently in uh, review, uh, which is focused on how uh, splicing factors can modulate or change response to target therapies uh, in AML. So there's nice. basically, uh, you know, different aspects to work on uh, while I was at Omar's lab. Yeah, that's that's really cool. That sounds like a <clears throat> excuse me. That sounds like a, a very comprehensive uh, postdoctoral training. <laughs> that sounds that sounds awesome. Uh, yeah, Thank and you. so now you are starting your own lab, and in a few words, what will the Eric Wang lab focus on? Yeah, I think our primary focus is in understanding uh, drug resistance in you know, hematological malignancies, including AML as well as uh, CLL. And, you know, it's really to kind of expand uh, my expertise using kind of you know, CRISPR-based technologies to you know, identify new mechanisms that are associated with these resistant mechanisms. And, you know, overall, you know, primary focus, which, you know, I want to combine my work for my PhD as well as postdoc is to really understand uh, RNA binding proteins and splicing factors that can uh, dictate response or uh, confer resistance uh, to these therapies. Yeah, and uh, if anybody listening right now is interested in performing this work, uh, yeah, you should definitely reach out to Eric because uh, he's he's good people. Thank you, Sam. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that, that's that's really exciting, man. I'm really I'm really happy for you, and um, and you know I I also want to to kind of dig into a little bit. So this we might have talked about this in the last podcast you were on, uh, where we discussed a little bit about how you got interested in science and how you became uh, a you know an expert bagel chef. But I'd love to dig into those things again. So let's start with the let's start with the bagels. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my parents, uh, you know, when they moved here in like 1984, 85, you know, they 
you know, they wanted to open up a business and, you know, back, you know, Long Island, of course, yeah. is famous for bagels and pizza. So they decided to choose uh, bagels. And so, you know, they've had the stores since, you know, over 30 years now. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I started in, uh, you know, I've always, as a kid, you know, played around in the bagel store, make silly dinosaurs of dough. But in, uh, you know, starting in high school and college, you know, I, you know, I took up some of the family business, mm-hmm. you know, I learned how to make as well as bake the bagels. Um, and, you know, I think it's been kind of a humbling experience, you know, every day, uh, getting up four or 5 a.m. Yeah. And, uh, wow. you know, even in like, yeah, hot weather and you know, during the summer, um, but it was a great experience and you know, I loved it. Although I won't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> So how, how did your uh, experience as a, a bagel chef uh, inform uh, how you're going to run your lab? Are you going to wake up at 4 or 5 a.m. To, to get in the lab and start working? Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe not that <laughs> early. But, you know, I think from, you know, working in the bagel shop, now I have like, a, you know, I guess an internal clock where, you know, I wake up every day, 7 a.m. with no, t- no alarm clock or anything. Right. So that's something I developed for sure um but you know i think for me you know i love getting up early getting things done um but of course you know for you know live members no of course you know i won't expect them to come in that early (laughs) yeah Um, i'd say that's the correct answer (laughs) (laughs) so uh you know transitioning from from bagels to to science so what, what was it can you kind of trace back uh how you first got interested in biology or cancer research? Was it a particular teacher or professor? Was it uh, a book? You know, is there anything that you can trace your, your interest back to? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, at at that time I was like a a junior in college and, you know, at that point I I, I was majoring in biology, but didn't want, I didn't know what to do after I graduate. And very fortunately, you know, one of the first people that really, first person that got me into research uh, was a researcher named Dorothy Guzowski. And she was actually a customer at at our bagel shop. And she recommended me to do a summer internship with her uh, at her uh, institute, the Feinstein Institute. Oh, no way. Um, Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, I spent two summers there. I loved it, you know, basically learning you know, the bread and butter of you know, molecular biology. Um, and that's when I realized, like, after graduating, I want to continue doing research. Um, and, you know, I didn't have a specific focus when I was applying for jobs. I just wanted to you know, see what was out there. And, you know, fortunately, you know, I was hired by uh, Chris Fockage, uh, who was, a, you know, my first mentor in science um, at Coast Spring Harbor Laboratory, where you know, I worked as a research technician for, I don't know, five or six years. It's mm-hmm. a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great story. I mean, so <clears throat> what I'm hearing is that the bagels and the science are connected. Yes. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's definitely like an unexpected journey for sure for, for myself. Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, yeah, and then, you know, so you mentioned that uh, you worked as a research technician for – five or six years, uh, and that was before starting the PhD program, right? 
uh, which could also last, yeah, last you know, around five years for, for, for most people. And uh, so, you know, can you kind of speak to this journey and, and um, you know, what pieces of, of advice can you offer to up and coming scientists who maybe they are interested in biology, they are interested in research, but they're not sure which path to take, uh, you know, any, any words of wisdom? Yeah, I mean, if you, you know, haven't done research or don't have a lot of research experience, you know, I think it's great you know, right after college to do a, you know, a research technician job just to kind of you know, see if you really like it. Um, you know, for me, you know, I love this so much that I worked for five or six years, where typically I think most people just work for a couple of years. But, you know, I think, you know, it depends on, you know, your interest. Uh, at that time, you know, I really loved what I was doing. I was learning every year something new. And so this just kind of motivated me to kind of stay longer than I should, or, you know, actually I don't mind, but <laughs> it was really a great kind of experience. And I think for me, at least my personal experience was those five or six years really helped, you know, basically helped me with my research so such that, you know, when I got into grad school, I basically just, you know, it was, it wasn't easy, but it was easier uh, for sure. the transition to grad school and then eventually a, a postdoc. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, yeah, I fully agree with that sentiment. Uh, yeah, I, I, I also worked as a research tech before starting grad school. Um, <clears throat> a little bit uh, uh less of a, a, a time uh, as a research tech than, than you did. I was there for maybe a couple of years. But I, I wholeheartedly agree that it was a really great way to get a firsthand look of what lab work, what lab research is like. And you can really pick up a lot of skills that if you decide to move forward with it will really help you in grad school. So I, I also uh, see what you mean there. Yeah, so Eric, any final parting yeah. words for for the audience uh, any words of wisdom to anybody out there listening interested thinking about science what do you got yeah i mean if you're interested in thinking about science you know, i would say definitely go for it you know just you know even if it's a kind of short experience but you, you never know what's going to happen uh, for me i've never imagined you know, going through this uh, academia kind of route. Uh, so, you know, I think you just have to give it a try. And, you know, if you really enjoy it, you know, it will last you, you know, you could continue research in academia, industry, and whatever kind of, you know, your preference is. And, you know, I think that's kind of my kind of major advice, which is just you know, go for it. You know, for me, you know, I, as I mentioned, I didn't expect to go to this route until I actually tried it. So yeah. I definitely recommend it. <laughs> yeah, just go for it is uh, great advice, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Eric Wang, thank you so much for being the first returning guest on Scientist the Human podcast. It's been a pleasure chatting with you as always. And best of luck with your brand new lab. And I can't wait to see uh, the awesome work that comes out of it. Thank you so much, Sam. It's uh, really a pleasure talking to you, as always. <laughs> and hopefully we can meet more in the, in the future. Oh, we will. Yeah. Thanks so much for being a guest again.
continuation of current scientist the human episode. Stay breezy.